1: Coming up, actor Toby Jones on class, character, and the cost of fame. Rishi Sunak takes a break from a feral Tory party, the spa day at the COVID inquiry, and the weird world of celebrity training, how Taylor Swift, Beyonce, and Madonna get in shape for their shows.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it You can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
1: Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, Zoe Williams meets The detectorist actor, Toby Jones who discusses his new drama about a scandalous miscarriage of justice within the post office and what Monty Python has in common with Boris Johnson. Read by Emma Stannard.
3: I'm waiting on a mezzanine in a fancy establishment in Shoreditch in East London when I hear a bounding tread full of enthusiasm taking two steps at a time. I wonder why a kid is coming up here, I think to myself. Then Toby Jones, aged 57, arrives. I'm surprised by how chic and urbane he looks. The nippy tailoring on his earth-coloured casual wear. But that's because I'd spent the week watching Mr Bates versus the post office. The new ITV drama tells the story of the class action suit that had Alan Bates, a former post office operator at Don in Dudno, at its centre. Bates, an unassuming crusader for justice, is a lot of things. His rock-solid moral compass has its own charisma by the time Jones has finished playing him, but he is emphatically not chic or urbane. The scandal is one of the largest miscarriages of justice in British legal history. The post office, over a period spanning more than 20 years, accused post office operators across the country of fraud and theft due to accounting errors that were in fact caused by their own software. It's a story of jaw-dropping corporate mendacity from the start, as post office representatives told numerous operators that they were alone in experiencing these errors, which would ultimately land all of them in court and some in prison. Casting every incident as a one-off, the post office failed to investigate their own vast screw-up, and once they discovered it, covered it up. Compensation has been slow and patchy. Many are still waiting. And many things, time spent in prison, lives lost to suicide, ongoing struggles with depression and anxiety, both among post office operators and their families, can never be compensated. Before we talk about that though, Jones clocks what I'm reading, Lanny by Max Porter, and has a thousand thoughts about the author. Fair play, Jones did voice the audio version of Grief is the Thing with Feathers by Porter. Please, if you haven't, go and listen to it now. So you'd expect him to have some thoughts, but not a thousand. So immediately we're talking about grief, then death, then mourning. He's just read a book about how the way we mourn defines how we live. Philosophers talk about death as the defining, conditioning influence of your life, but I've never heard anyone say that of mourning. Obviously, I start picking holes in this immediately. It's just how I am. That can't be right, because a lot of us don't lose anyone until we're pretty old and already defined. He doesn't argue the point. He goes deeper into it. My wife lost both her parents. Her mum was 51, her dad was 61. And no one we knew had lost anyone, he says. I think back to the flailing attempts I made to try to empathise with her, compared with what I go through, my friends go through, my brothers go through now. Their father died in 2019, aged 91. Grieving is so much the lingua franca of our age. We're all in it now. We will be in it for the rest of our lives. And I want to apologise to my wife and her sister, say, I'm really sorry, I really wasn't on it. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Jones is an actor's actor, so subtle, meticulous, inventive that often it takes a trained eye to pinpoint it, even if the untrained eye can perceive it. He has been the stamp of excellence on a huge number of films and TV shows since the 1990s, though rarely the lead, with a few exceptions. He played Truman Capote in the biopic Infamous, released in 2007. Roger Yount in the BBC adaptation of John Lanchester's Capital, released in 2015. Arguably, there was no lead in that, but Jones's hectic, emotional banker was up there. He's one half of Detectorists, which ran from 2014 to 2022. The other, Mackenzie Crook. Having discernment and lacking a square jaw, there's no romantic lunk material, and therefore almost nothing boring on his CV even if he has sometimes been underused in blockbusters. For people who have worked with him, the top line is always that he's a genius. But the first thing you notice when you meet him is that he's incredibly nice. His performance as Bates is fantastic. From the minute he appears behind his post office counter, he hums with decency, doggedness, unassuming courage, utter determination. Bates had walked away from his post office and had no dog in the fight, but was still sifting through his records, trying to get to the bottom of how the errors had been introduced. When he started getting a sense of how many other post office operators were involved and called a public meeting in an out-of-the-way place just because it looked to him to be smack in the centre of the UK, things began to change. Bates, by Jones's account, he spoke to him preparing for the role is pretty unusual. Effectively, he was sort of saying, I don't have emotions. I went in with all these questions. What was it? How did you? How much time? How did it affect you? And he would say, yeah, yeah, but the thing is, I don't really have feelings about things like that. Having hit the brick wall of a character who taught himself how software works, yet refused point blank to emote, Jones was in a fix. On the one hand, that's pretty much what you would expect a post office operator to be like. That's why they're the right people to be postmasters. It's their job to be completely invisible. Almost. But on the other hand, he says, How was I going to play this guy? I don't believe a word of what he says to me about himself. I don't believe any human is like that. Everyone has emotions. Then he spoke to former MP James Arbuthnot who also fought hard to get justice for the post office operators. And he said, Every moment I spent with Alan Bates improved the quality of my life. I am privileged to know a man like Alan Bates. He's like the British qualities I was told about when I was a kid, Jones says. Modesty and duty and don't get above yourself. All that stuff that sort of went out the window in the 80s. He was formed by those forces. I just find it so heroic, and it's celebrated in the drama. That, more than anything, made me want to do it. Just thinking, wouldn't it be great if there were more of these stories, rather than these shameless people we have to hear about every day? The scandal is still not resolved. Compensation is outrageously slow. Some of the impact will take years to heal. Some is irreparable. Four people caught up in it have taken their own lives. So the drama feels like a very live intervention, as well as a timeless, archetypal piece. This is the way I learned drama, Jones says. The hero falls out of the chorus, either speaks for it or speaks against it. It felt so primal in that sense. Anyway, he's keen to stress he just took the gig. Actors are beggars. And the only decision he's ever called on to make is... Yes or no. He must have a little more agency than he makes out, since his highest aim is not to repeat himself, and his CV shows very little repetition. Even in the blockbusters, Captain America, released in 2011 and 2014, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, released in 2018, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, released in 2023, which are similar by definition, he's never the same thing twice. You're always looking for the space that hasn't been colonised by stuff you've done already. If you're repeating a similar part, in the sense of its function within the story, that can be soul-destroying. The joy of the job is entirely compromised. It becomes like work. Nevertheless, he is very clear on this. Any employment is better than unemployment. Where I trained as an actor in Paris, that was literally all it was about. You should never be unemployed. It's irresponsible to be unemployed. I'm desperately trying to stifle a laugh, overcome by the irony. He went to the world's most famous mime school and they told him never to be unemployed. At Jacques Lecoq they said that, I ask. At Jacques Lecoq they said that, he affirms. But it's a fucking mime school, I say. It's not a fucking mime school, he replies. He doesn't seem miffed. Maybe if I say mime a lot more times, he will be. This sparks a conversation in which I learned more about the brass tacks of acting than I have in the rest of my life combined. Toby Jones, the child of two actors, was determined not to follow in their footsteps. His father, Freddie Jones, was revered on stage and in demand on telly, ending his career with 13 years doing Emmerdale. His mother, Jenny Jones... Nay Hesselwood started out acting before raising Toby and his two brothers. Jones was born in London and grew up in Oxford, where he went to Abingdon, the private school that gave us seven famous people in the space of a few year groups, Jones, Tom Hollander and all five members of Radiohead. He's sometimes spotted in the queue at their gigs. He went to the University of Manchester, intending to be a director, graduating in 1989. I got to the end of those three years thinking, is there any point to this? Because you spend a lot of time discussing the future of theatre and it seems bleak. Other media are taking over. People's disposable incomes are shrinking. And this was back then. Things are way more severe now. But then I came across continental photographs of Polish theatre, French theatre and thought, this doesn't look like anything I've seen before. It's a medieval principle. You will make new theatre with people from different cultures. It will generate new physical language just by definition, because you have different body language, different ways of speaking, and you have to improvise together. This, he thought, would survive the modern world. Theatre that wasn't just pretending to be TV. So he went to Paris. And I remember on the first day them saying... And now we have acrobatics and thinking, no, 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 I'm here to do theatre. He says this while almost doing an impression of his younger self. Public school educated, confident on the surface, not underneath. The revelatory side of it was using the whole other side of my brain, which I'd sort of thrown away from about the age of 12, when I just wanted to read and write. Suddenly that was not valued. They would literally say, Can you please stop writing notes, stop thinking, and play again? There was one other influence besides Lecoq Monty Python, listening to those records over and over again as a child, thinking, Why does this make me laugh? But that's a real young boy's thing. He breaks to acknowledge that that's sexist, winningly, and then continues. We obsessively listen to the same records over and over until we get it, and that sort of gets hardwired into you. I say I can't find Python funny anymore, ever since that private school sensibility has been deployed in the service of political evil. I know exactly what you mean by that, he says, because it felt like when we were looking at Boris Johnson, one was looking at a man one knew, thinking, wow, wow. That's like the pure form of a lot of people I met at school and saw in other schools. I know that guy. It almost affected me more profoundly because of that. It's ruined the charm, which was apparently his great currency. It's so cynical the way he operates. I feel like we might settle into whining about the government, which is my happy place, but he hares off. I once heard someone say that all comedy was conservative. I said, what? It's anarchy, he said. No comedy assumes there's a right way to do everything, which is being screwed up or subverted. In order to understand it, you have to go, There's a right way to do everything, and this isn't it. Or, They're all getting it, and look at the guy who isn't. Or, Listen to her accent, isn't she funny? It plays on a certain understanding of normalcy. When Jones arrived back in London in 1991, it was as a radical, an idealist. The training was, again, to a medieval model where everyone did everything. Acting, writing, producing, directing, designing, with the goal of setting up a company and making art. I'd had so much fun and the possibilities were so endless. But no one knows you and no one in the world needs you. So you have to find a way of being needed. Defensively, You take up a position, us against the world, and the world is shit. We've got to get funding for this work that matters. Overturn all that corrupt theatre. You demonise the opposition rather than just going, we're another part of that ecosystem. He spent a lot of time in the Battersea Arts Centre, South London, watching plays, pulling apart everyone's work afterwards. And it was our own sort of little golden age. He emphatically wouldn't divide his career into wilderness years and box office and says, if someone said to me, let's make a little bit of theatre in Battersea Arts Centre, I'd go, how much time is it going to take? What is it? It might be that that is exactly what I should do. He landed a tiny part in the fascinating Orlando released in 1992, starring Tilda Swinton that year. By the turn of the century, a lot of classic British TV and filmmaking would have looked a bit incomplete without Jones in it. Whether that was Doctor Who, or as the voice of Dobby in two Harry Potters, he seems quite ego-free, or ego-low at any rate, in the sense that his quest was never for a part that was larger than the last. He has carried films as the lead, such as Infamous, but he didn't bring anything less than 100% Jonesiness as Norman a smaller role in last year's Empire of Light. Is he ambitious? He approaches the question in a roundabout way. Well, my partner's a lawyer, he starts. He's referring to his wife, Karen. They had been together for 25 years by the time they married in 2015 and have two grown-up daughters. And there's an assumption of what is expected. When you get good at being a lawyer, then you have to do that, then you have to do this. Acting is plainly not like that. There's no career path, and I do love that. There is no penthouse. There is no top boss. There is no Shangri La to aim for. But there are similarities insofar as people project their own ambition onto you. Why don't you have the same kind of ambition? I'm very ambitious, but I don't necessarily have the same ambition as someone else. I think after a certain age, fame is a puerile ambition. I don't feel famous, but I feel famous enough to answer the question. How many times do you need to be told it's not the answer? The culture constantly tells you, doesn't it? It doesn't bring happiness. And guess what? It doesn't. But if you're someone who's struggling to make it as an actor, if you're struggling to be seen, if you think, maybe I've got to give up being an actor, and you read me saying fame isn't the answer, you'll go, fuck off. Who the fuck are you to say that? Possibly the performance I found most surprising was Lance in Detectorists. Everything about it, from his delivery to his bones, was just so funny. I'm very aware of being public school now, being modest, self-effacing, charming, all those things you loathe, that loathsome behaviour. But that was funny because the writing was absolutely faultless. No one ever had to change a single line that Mackenzie Crook wrote. Find yourself a friend who talks about you like Jones and Crook talk about each other, is my advice. It's lovely. And just as I'm thinking that, he says the same of the characters they play. This is about two people who don't go to the football. They go and stand in a field and hunt the earth. So it's very easy to go, ha, ha, outliers. But no, they're not really doing that. They happen to be doing that. They're passionate about it but they're really in love with each other. They really adore each other's difference. Arguably, the more surprising choice of roles are the blockbusters, which can't possibly use the range Jones has. It's just not their bailiwick. It's still exciting to go into bigger productions, because you just look at all of these people who have all had the same struggle as you've had. Even on massive budget Hollywood things, you go... It's just a shame that this script isn't as good as it could be, because look at the people. He's not explicitly talking about Jurassic Park or Indiana Jones, the most recent reboots of both franchises, but I think he might be here. Some people go to the cinema wanting to be disoriented, but other people go thinking, I want to be more with dinosaurs, I want to be more with adventurous archaeologists. The story is neither here nor there, it's just, I want to be more in that like a theme park, and you realise that that's the roots of cinema. Trains coming towards you. Wow, it's a sensation. So my own preoccupations about what I like in cinema are neither here nor there. You know what? It's probably really simple. He's nice because he's not disappointed. Having a deep, creative curiosity that can't be exhausted or thwarted. He loves what he does, and there's always more of it. Talking to friends, actor friends who have survived this long and are working this long, I'm really aware of the bits of the job I like and the bits of the job I don't like. And those lists change a bit. This morning I had to have my photo taken and I hate it. I fucking hate it. But this morning, I didn't hate it. I think of the wardrobe laid out for the shoot. When I first arrived, a pair of dress shoes, pair after pair of stocks, I would also hate that people making me wear Birkenstocks in every colour. But no, that's not what he hated. There's nothing to hide behind. When is there ever anything to hide behind, I ask. Well, he says patiently, when I'm playing a character who's not me.
1: That was, I'm very aware of being public school now, all those things you love. Toby Jones on class, character and the cost of fame by Zoe Williams Read by Emma Stannard To learn more about the devastating story behind the drama Mr Bates versus the Post Office check out today in Focus's two-part investigation The Post Office Scandal Listen wherever you get your podcasts We're going to take a short break now We'll be right back with the second half of this episode in a moment Don't go anywhere <laughs>
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-Free Listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash newsadfree. That's amazon.com slash newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. You can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
1: Welcome back to Weekend. Next, when Rishi Sunak finally took the hot seat at the COVID inquiry last week, he turned out to be unable to remember anything except the need for a brief apology. As imagined by John Crace. Read by Jonathan Keeble.
4: Always look on the bright side of life. At any other time, an appearance before the Covid inquiry might have been a bit of an uphill struggle. A nightmare even. But compared with facing down all factions of an increasingly feral Conservative Party over what his own Home Secretary calls the batshit Rwanda policy, A day out in Paddington answering questions from the ultra-smooth Hugo Keith was like a spa treatment. A gentle exfoliation. Hell, what was the worst that could happen? Who cares if everyone thinks you're an incompetent dweeb who wasn't that bothered if people lived or died? Right now, his priority was surviving in Downing Street until Christmas, something that was by no means guaranteed. The Tories were now so certifiable the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail were campaigning for the dream team of Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage. Arise, Lord Boris! Arise, Lord Nige! Because the answer to batshit crazy is to get batshit crazier. There were a few heckles on his way in, so much more polite than the slavering Marc Francois on College Green, but Rish could zone out... "'from the background noise. "'He had far too much to remember. "'Principally, he had to remember precisely "'what he had been briefed to forget. "'For it was to turn out that, like Johnson before him, "'the lasting effect of the Covid pandemic "'had been near total amnesia. "'Time and again, Rish would scratch his head "'and look blank. "'It wasn't just the past that was another country. "'It was also the truth.' After a brief apology from Sunak, he was terribly sorry for all the things that he couldn't remember and weren't his fault, Keith began by asking about the missing WhatsApps. Again, just like Boris, it turned out that all his messages had inexplicably deleted themselves. Just imagine the coincidence. That the Prime Minister and the Chancellor had been in possession of the only two phones in the UK whose messages could neither be retrieved nor had automatically transferred themselves to a new phone. How unlucky can you get? Sue Nackard was desperate. No, devastated, inconsolable. Could he take a break to recover while he spoke to his therapist? Because he was absolutely certain that if those messages had been available, they would prove that he had done absolutely the right thing at all times, and that he was unusually forgetful. But look— He told the Urbane KC, here's what he would do to make it up to the inquiry. He would pass a law saying that he had handed over all his WhatsApp messages after all, and, what's more, they had all exonerated him. What more could he do? It had worked for Rwanda. Unsafe to safe in the twinkle of a prime ministerial eye. We then got on to the metaphysics of the pandemic because it wasn't just that Rish could remember next to nothing—memory loss was the main symptom of his long Covid—but he wasn't even entirely sure if he had even been in 11 Downing Street at the time. Not just a virus, but an existential breakdown, one that had led him to question everything. He now wasn't sure of anything. He couldn't be certain if this even was the Covid inquiry, or just a black mirror image— or if he and his surroundings were even real. He was merely living from minute to minute, trying to second-guess the truth. Keith breathed in deeply, trying to keep cool, not to be rattled by an overindulged tabula rasa. Do it in baby steps. It was like this, said Sue Nackard. If he had been working in the Treasury, then he was sure he had taken an entirely passive role. Just... "'passing on helpful pieces of information to the cabinet office "'and quite happy to have his advice ignored. "'But then he couldn't remember anything, "'so that was only how he assumed it must have been. "'He was sure if he had actually been responsible for anything, "'then someone would have told him. "'Had he noticed anything unusual about Number 10? "'Not at all. Everything looked fine.' So the chaos and parties just felt normal. And what about the spectator interview in 2022, the one in which he had boasted to the editor of not leaving a paper trail and having been anti-lockdowns? Sunak shrugged. He was baffled. He had no idea how Fraser Nelson might have got the idea from an interview with him that he had thought such things. So many mysteries in the Rish Miniverse. Um time to get zen. Clear the mind with the downward dog. What the inquiry really had to remember was the nature of insignificance. Sunak was a mere speck of dust. We all were. The Chancellor no more than human flotsam. He had been at most a conduit, passing on ideas to a greater being, a semi-sentient Ouija board, His contribution to whether the Prime Minister imposed a lockdown was infinitesimal. Whether he was in favour of lockdowns or against them, whether he was in favour of the science or not, was just semantics. He wasn't there, just as he wasn't here. The Nowhere Man. For a brief while after lunch, Sunak's synapses briefly fired. The memories came flooding back. It had been the scientists who had been wrong to call him Dr. Death. They had forgotten, they had always loved him, and applauded the far-sighted way in which he sensitively combined the needs of the economy with the risk to public health. They had loved his eat-out-to-wipe-out scheme, which had only ever been a micro-policy, a mere bagatelle. Here was a lash of the familiar Rish, the chippy-tetchy Rishi, The man who can't stand having his word questioned, who expects undying love even when he was actively trying to kill us all. Because he was only ever killing us with kindness. It was for our own benefit that more people had to die. And then fatigue set in again. Sunak was soon-knackered. The act of remembering had been exhausting, so the brain cells clouded over again. Je ne regrette rien. Je ne me souviens de rien. Everything was a blur. If you could remember working in Downing Street during the pandemic, then you hadn't been there. He was sorry that he couldn't help more. He was lighter than air. Float, float, floating away. That was Rish
1: Takes a Break from Feral Tory Party with a Spa Day at the Covid Inquiry by John Crace Read by Jonathan Keeble Finally It takes incredible stamina for the likes of Madonna and Taylor Swift to sing and dance for three hours night after night after night Here, Elle Hunt meets the fitness professionals getting stars stadium ready and here's the secrets of their
5: regimes Read by Isabel Farah Being a pop star used to mean having a nice face and a good voice and learning a few dance routines. That no longer cuts it at the top, as Taylor Swift reminded us when she revealed how she had prepared for her era's tour. Every day, I would run on the treadmill, singing the entire setlist out loud, she told Time magazine. Fast for fast songs and a jog or a fast walk for slow songs. Then I had three months of dance training because I wanted to get it in my bones. If you have seen Era's Live or watched it at the cinema, you will know why she had to put in the work. Part pop extravaganza, part endurance feat, it involves almost three hours of costume changes, vigorous dancing and sprints from one end of the stage to the other, all while belting out songs. As the colour rises in Swift's face and the sweat gathers at her hairline, you start to feel tired yourself. Swift is not unique. Beyoncé's film, Renaissance, also documents the physical labour required for a tour, while 65-year-old Madonna's current celebration tour, which is due to conclude next April after 78 shows, makes clear how long that commitment can last. We treat them as athletes. What stress is going to be put on the body, says Dan Roberts. A personal trainer based in London, he is one of a handful of fitness professionals engaged in what he calls the weird world of celebrity training. Most often, it involves getting actors in shape for superhero roles or shirtless scenes. Some of his clients were on Broadway, on stage for two hours a night for six months at a time. But he also works with royalty and famous musicians. Non-disclosure agreements mean he can't name names, but he can speak generally. Sometimes, Roberts is flown out to support an artist mid-tour, but more often he liaises with other A-list trainers around the world to look after his regular clients, and he trains those who are passing through London. His first step is to assess the needs of the individual and their goals. Someone like Beyonce, for example, has got very energetic dance routines, whereas Liam Gallagher can just stand there. Typically, the physical preparation for a tour starts three months in advance, says Roberts. Most stars are no strangers to exercise and often present with old injuries. No one says, my body's great, Roberts says. You have to work around that. Another personal trainer, John O'Castano, who is based in Sydney, agrees. A lot of them know what they need to do, what to eat, how to train. It's about reminding them and keeping them accountable. Prehabilitation work, which means building flexibility and all-round strength, is vital for preventing injury when dancing night after night. Roberts focuses on the stabiliser muscles around the ankles and other stuff that is more likely to get knackered. There is rarely a need to bulk up, though Roberts had one pop star client whose body fat was too low for her to safely exert herself night after night. She was getting away with it in terms of health, but she wasn't menstruating, which is always a warning sign. I knew the tour was going to be hard on her because she didn't eat that much when she was stressed. The goal, in that case, was to increase her body fat and maintain it for the duration of the tour. But... "'Beyond the demands of consecutive nightly performances, "'there is often a less obvious secondary goal,' says Roberts, "'such as losing weight or gaining muscle "'before a red-carpet appearance or film role. "'Increasingly, these people are brands "'and they have to do multiple things.'" Rita Ora, a client of Castano, "'often arrived at sessions feeling tired, "'which is understandable,' he says. But seeing the benefits of what a training session does, releasing endorphins, she left feeling so much better and more positive. Even the sympathetic ear of a trainer, just listening to them, giving advice on whatever that day held, can be valuable, he says. I always say, if you can't put aside 45 minutes for yourself each day, then we need to take a look inside. For some celebrities, working out is even kind of an escape. As well as being an ad hoc therapist, the trainer has to recognise and accommodate the nuanced demands of the star's schedule. For those at Swift's level, that could mean the trainer serving as one cog in a well-oiled machine, says Roberts. Their every need is catered for. It's like a company. Swift's team, for example, might be made up of as many as 40 full-time personnel with dozens more contracted for tours. A big undertaking like the Era's tour might extend to daily massages, routine strength and fitness assessments, and nutrition that meets the star's exact requirements. Sometimes the most challenging part of the trainer's job is convincing the star that they have something to offer them. Stars at the level of Mick Jagger and Madonna, who have given over their lives to performing, can be complete control freaks, says Roberts. That's not an insult. It's why they're so ridiculously successful. But it's very hard coming into that as a trainer, no matter how good you think you are, because as soon as you make a stand, you'll get fired. While performers are on the road, workouts are often paired back to maintenance level and rest days are built into the schedule to protect the star's energy and well-being. Roberts estimates that they might burn 1,000 calories in a single show, or even two or three times that. But it's not the same exertion as if the average person or even someone very fit like Roberts were to take the stage. He has never worked with Swift, but guesses that for her, a three-hour show might be like running five kilometres for many of us, tiring but not annihilating. She's built those muscles and energy levels up over the past 15 years. Some artists seem verging on superhuman. Pink, known for the aerial acrobatics in her shows, does an hour of cardio and an hour of yoga before taking to the stage. Sometimes I feel more like an athlete than a singer, she has said. Before a performance, more acrobatic vocalists might limit conversation. And superstars rarely party afterwards, says Roberts, motivated by the need to protect their brand as much as their instrument. They have their honey tea or whatever, go to bed early, get their rest. You see what the artists go through, and it's immense, says Neve McCarthy, the founder of Mindful Nation, a meditation app designed for artists. In her previous life, McCarthy spent four years on the road with U2 as their assistant manager while also jetting over to support Madonna as needed. Having left the touring life behind, she's not surprised to see younger stars, including Justin Bieber and Shawn Mendes, cancelling concerts to focus on their well-being. Not only are they expected to go on stage and give it their all every night, but a lot of after-show things are obligatory. Your label and publishing companies want to see you and talk. They're just so busy. But today's image-conscious artists aren't going to ruin their reputation or cancel a show because they're hungover. They're too professional, says Roberts. Only a few of his clients have lived up to the hard-living, hard-drinking cliché, and they were in rock bands where they don't give a shit about how they look. That, too, had to be taken into account in training. Roberts recalls working with a singer who refused a protein shake because it contained additives. I told him, mate, you had four lines of coke last night and it was a Tuesday. Get your priorities right. That was The Weird World of
1: Celebrity Training. How Taylor Swift, Beyonce and Madonna get in shape for their shows. By L. Hunt. Read by Isabel Farah. Before you go, we wanted to tell you about The Guardian and Observer's annual charity appeal. This year we are asking for your support to help refugees and asylum seekers rebuild their lives in safety. We're partnering with Refugee Council, Refugees at Home and NACOM to provide asylum seekers and refugees with practical support, vital accommodation and a safety net against homelessness and destitution. If you can, please donate now at theguardian.com forward slash donate. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Emma Stannard, Jonathan Keeble and Isabel Farah and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening.
0: This is The Guardian.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all.